Welcome to the Murder Minute podcast. On this episode, the story of Jody Arias and Travis Alexander. But first, your true crime headlines. The state of Florida executed serial killer and rapist Bobby Joe Long last week, who had been found guilty of his crimes more than three decades ago. Long terrorized the Tampa area in 1984, abducting 10 women who he raped and murdered before dumping their bodies in rural areas, often leaving them in gruesome poses. The eight-month-long killing spree initially left investigators with few clues, aside from some red carpet fibers found on the victims. It wasn't until Long abducted 17-year-old Lisa Noland, who was kidnapped when riding her bike home from a part-time job, that investigators were able to break the case open. Long kidnapped the young woman and kept her captive in his apartment for 26 hours, during which time he raped her repeatedly. She was able to convince him not to kill her, and instead he blindfolded her and dropped her off in front of a church. She recounted details of her ordeal to investigators who were able to locate Long and tie him to the other killings. During his interrogation, he confessed to killing 10 women. He would eventually be convicted for eight of those killings. Long received 28 life sentences and one death sentence, which was carried out last Thursday after 34 years and numerous legal challenges. Bobby Joe Long received no visitors on the day of his execution. His last meal consisted of a roast beef sandwich, bacon, french fries, and a soda. He did not make a final statement, instead closing his eyes as the lethal injection procedure began. Seated in the front row to witness his execution was Lisa Noland, who is now a deputy with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, the same department that she assisted in bringing her attacker to justice. A six-month-old baby girl was found alive in a motel room in Michigan along with her mother and father, both of whom were deceased. The little girl is believed to have survived in the room with her dead parents for three days and was taken to the hospital dehydrated and in critical condition. Her parents, both in their mid-twenties, had been in and out of jail, according to family members. They had been staying at the motel with their daughter for about a week when investigators performing a welfare check found their bodies. Authorities do not suspect foul play and an official cause of death is still being determined. Police and family members confirm that drug paraphernalia was found in the room, but toxicology results are expected to take at least a month to complete. Almost three decades after an 18-year-old woman was found murdered in Washington state, her killer has finally been brought to justice. Mandy Stavik was home from college on Thanksgiving break when she went out for a jog near her home in Whatcom County. She took her German shepherd Kira along with her. Three hours later, Kira returned, but Mandy did not. Her nude body was found three days later at a fork in the Nooksack River, about three and a half miles from her home. She was nude except for her socks and shoes, and semen was found on her body and collected. Investigators worked to identify a suspect and had previously identified Timothy Bass as the potential perpetrator. When investigators asked Bass to voluntarily provide a DNA sample, he refused. His employer, Franz Bakery, refused to cooperate with investigators who requested information on the longtime delivery driver's routes. Instead, a co-worker from the bakery assisted police in acquiring the evidence that they needed. In 2017, bakery worker Kimberly Wagner watched Bass take a drink from a can of Coke, which she then collected from a trash bin 
and handed over to investigators. The DNA on that Coke can was a match to DNA found on the victim's body and led to the arrest of Timothy Bass on charges of first-degree murder and rape. Bass was found guilty last week and faces a sentence of more than 26 years in prison. A sentencing date has not yet been set. A baby girl found dead in Southern California on Monday has been positively identified as the daughter of a missing Sacramento man. The baby, eight-month-old Alexia Rose Echeverria, was found in a car seat, partially covered with a blanket, behind a bellflower funeral home around 10.30 Monday morning. Her father, 30-year-old Alexander Echeverria of Sacramento, had been reported missing by family members who described him as depressed and were concerned about his well-being. Alexander Echeverria is described as 5 foot 6 and 160 pounds, with brown eyes and dark hair. He was last seen on Friday night in Bellflower, driving a gray Volkswagen Jetta with his daughter inside. Police are asking for the public's help in finding the man who is still missing. A five-year-old girl has been missing from her home in Logan, Utah since Saturday, and police believe that her uncle had something to do with her disappearance. Elizabeth Shelley was reported missing on Saturday morning and was believed to be in the company of her 21-year-old uncle, Alex Whipple, who had been at her home the night that she disappeared. Whipple was found later that day and arrested on unrelated charges stemming from a parole violation. He has been uncooperative with investigators during questioning about his niece's disappearance and is considered a suspect. Police report that they have strong forensic evidence linking Whipple to the crime and they believe that Elizabeth Shelley has been harmed. They have urged residents of the area to thoroughly search their properties for any clues to her whereabouts. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's. So thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of how a beautiful, smart, and seemingly normal girl's obsession with her ex-boyfriend turned fatal. Jody Arias was born on July 9, 1980, in Salinas, California. Jody was surrounded by loving friends and family. A beautiful, blonde, aspiring photographer, Jody seemed to have it all. In September of 2006, Jody met Travis Alexander at a business conference in Las Vegas. Their chance meeting would eventually lead to over a year of dating, a passionate love affair, bouts of jealousy and rage, a brutal breakup, and ultimately, 
a murder that would shock the nation. Travis Alexander was born on July 28, 1977 in Riverside, California. At age 11, he moved in with his grandparents who introduced him to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After his father's death in 1997, his seven siblings followed. Travis grew up to be a successful salesman and motivational speaker for prepaid legal services and continued to be a devout Mormon. When Travis met Jody at a conference for prepaid legal services in Las Vegas in September of 2006, the two seemed to hit it off immediately. To make their relationship official and to prove her commitment to Travis, Jody converted to his Mormon faith just two months later. After becoming baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their relationship became official in February of 2007. The two were working out a long-distance relationship as Jody resided in California and Travis lived in Arizona. But Travis's friends seemed to have concerns about the couple. Jody soon moved to Mesa, Arizona to live closer to Travis. Friends thought that their relationship was tumultuous with Jody's behavior particularly worrying. According to them, Jody seemed to obsess over Travis and wanted the relationship to move too quickly. In March of 2007, Jody moved to Eureka, California and lived there with her grandparents. Jody and Travis dated on and off, taking turns between their Arizona and California homes. By June of 2007, Jody and Travis's relationship had taken a turn for the worse, ending in a rocky breakup that would lead to months of stalking abuse, email and social media hacking, and more. Jody was not letting go of Travis and still continued to see him occasionally. In December of 2007, Travis started seeing another woman and Jody became jealous, obsessive, violent, and erratic, slashing the tires on Travis's car on more than one occasion and even going so far as to harass his new girlfriend with countless emails and phone calls. Jody was not going to give up Travis so easily. And though her jealousy was reaching unruly levels, the two continued a physical relationship until June of 2008, when their relationship would finally end for good. On June 4th, 2008, Jody was on her way to Utah to visit a new man that she had been dating. But she decided to pay Travis a visit at his home instead, and according to Jody, embark on a passionate night of intimacy. But Travis's friends were concerned when Travis missed an important conference call, and after several days, they still couldn't reach him. Travis and his friends were supposed to travel together on June 15th for a work-related trip to Cancun. Travis had told friends that Jody would join them on the trip, but in April, Travis had asked them to change his travel companion to another female friend. On June 9th, 2008, Travis's concerned friends finally entered his home and discovered their worst nightmare. Travis Alexander was naked in the shower, dead from a gunshot wound to the head, 27 to 29 stab wounds, multiple self-defense wounds on his palms and fingers, and a final fatal blow. His throat had been slit from ear to ear. His friends called 911 and waited for police to arrive on the scene. When interviewed by police, Travis's friends gave them the name of the person they knew was behind this horrible homicide, Jody Arias. She was totally obsessed with him, Alexander's close friend Sky Hughes told reporters. She wouldn't let him go. Whenever he would try to sever all ties, 
she would threaten to kill herself. He would tell her that he didn't want anything to do with her, and she would show up at his house. We knew it was her. We didn't want it to be her, but we just knew it was. When police questioned Jody about Travis's murder, she adamantly denied any involvement. She told police that she was out of town visiting a new man that she had recently started seeing, Ryan Burns. On June 13th, Arias posted a photo gallery on her MySpace page titled, In Loving Memory of Travis. But when Travis's friends told police about Jody slashing his tires and hacking into his social media accounts, they kept Jody on their radar as a potential suspect. A few weeks later, police found a key piece of evidence to piece together Travis's final moments. A digital camera that was found intentionally destroyed in his washing machine. Thankfully, the memory card was still intact, providing police with a series of sexually explicit photos taken of Travis in the bedroom and in the shower. Although the photos seemed to initially capture a steamy night between Travis and Jody, the images became increasingly more disturbing as photos of him bleeding are discovered on the card, as well as compromising photos of Jody. Their last piece of evidence was a bloody palm print found on the bathroom wall. A palm print that contained DNA from both Travis and Jody. But just as police were sure that they found their murderer, Jody's version of events that night took a bizarre turn. During her interrogation, Jody admitted to police that she was in fact with Travis at his home on June 4th and that they did spend the night together. But she wasn't his murderer. According to her, intruders entered his house in an attempt to burglarize it and killed Travis while he tried to defend his home and Jody. But police were not buying her new story. There was no evidence to confirm a break-in, and the evidence against Jody was mounting. Phone records showed that on June 2nd, between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., Jody called Travis four times, but did not appear to get through to him, since the longest of the calls was 17 seconds. After 3 a.m., Travis called Jody twice, the first time for 18 minutes, the second time for 41 minutes, and at 4.03 a.m., Jody called him back, and the last call was two minutes long and 48 seconds. The calls and transcripts were not presented in the Jody Arias trial. At 5.39 a.m., Jody went to rent a car for a trip to Utah, as stated in evidence by a gasoline purchase at a Shell Food Mart in Eureka. On the morning of June 2nd, Jody rented a car at Budget Rent Center in Redding, California. She indicated that she would return the car to Budget in Redding. Arias visited friends in Southern California on her way to Utah for another PPL work conference and to meet with Ryan Burns. By late evening on June 3rd, Jody set out for Salt Lake City. On June 6th, Jody left Salt Lake City and drove the rental car back to California. She called Travis's phone several times and left several voicemails in an attempt to cover her tracks. The rental clerk testified that the rental car was missing its floor mats and had red stains on its front and rear seats. It could not be verified that the car had floor mats when Jody picked it up and any blood stains could not be verified since the car was cleaned before investigators could examine it. Ryan Burns would later state that when Jody arrived at his home in Utah, she had dyed her blonde hair brown and had cuts on her fingers. Jody was arrested for the murder of Travis Alexander on July 15, 2008. 
prosecutors sought the death penalty. In August of 2011, Jody was granted a request by a judge to represent herself at trial, as long as her public defenders stayed on as advisory counsel. But the judge reinstated her defense counsel after they learned that letters from Travis Alexander, which Jody requested be admitted as evidence, had been forged by her. Jody's whirlwind trial finally began on January 2nd, 2013. It was aired live to the public and became a media sensation. In February, Jody took the witness stand and would go on to testify for 18 consecutive days. Jody had changed her story several times and was now claiming that she had killed her ex in self-defense. Jody testified that Travis had frequently abused her and that she killed him after he attacked her in a fit of rage when she dropped his camera. She also claimed to have suffered memory loss as the result of the trauma of the incident, with a psychologist testifying that Jody was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Lying isn't typically something I just do, Jody said. The lies I've told in this case can be tied directly back to either protecting Travis's reputation or my involvement in his death because I was very ashamed. Friends of Travis's took the stand against Jody, citing her vindictive behaviors, and even ex-girlfriends testified to clear Travis's name of any domestic abuse, despite Jody's claims. Jody claimed years of abuse at the hands of her parents and that Travis emotionally abused her and on a few occasions got physical. But the jury didn't buy Jody's new story. On May 8, 2013, Jody was found guilty of first-degree murder. Five jurors found her guilty of premeditated murder, and seven found her guilty of both premeditated and felony murder. However, the judge declared a mistrial in the penalty phase after the jury deadlocked on whether Jody Arias should receive the death penalty. The penalty retrial began in October of 2014, with a new jury reviewing the same evidence presented at the first trial. This time, the focus was on the psychological makeup of both parties, with the defense attempting to portray Jody as a vulnerable woman and Travis Alexander as emotionally and physically abusive. But in March of 2015, the second jury was also unable to agree on Jody's sentence, removing the option of the death penalty and leaving sentencing terms to Judge Sherry Stevens. On April 13, 2015, Jody Arias received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. I wish there was something I could do to take it back, Jody said at her sentencing hearing. In October of 2017, Arias alleged in a civil suit that the head of her legal team broke attorney-client privilege by disclosing confidential information for the expressed purpose of financial gain and his own public redemption in a tell-all book about her case. The lawyer said that he intends to fight this battle with vigor. Today, Jody is incarcerated at the Arizona State Prison, where she will spend her final days. According to her former cellmate, Tracy, Jody spent her time in prison tattooing her fellow inmates to earn extra money and sells her original artwork. Tracy also told reporters that Jody flirted with prison guards to keep her contraband tattooing equipment. Tracy also claims that Jody confessed to her in prison that she did, in fact, murder Travis Alexander, but that she had intended to kill his new girlfriend, Lisa, and not Travis. Jody admitted to stalking Travis, 
Tracy describes Jody as a sociopath who will use you to get what she wants, and when she's done with you, she will throw you away. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.